We have already read this morning Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 16. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. Twelve verses from the book of Revelation. We have heard Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Psalm 116 and verse 15. We've heard about a martyr under bloody Mary. Bible baptism is thumbing your nose at the Roman Catholic Church, and it's a wonderful thing to do. And that's why it's the patience of the saints who were persecuted and, and martyred by the Roman Catholic Church. And to be baptized with Bible baptism as a professing, confessing, repenting adult was to thumb your nose at the church that gave you an infant sprinkling when, or an infant pouring, a fusion, when you were a child. And what a statement it was. And so they were slurred with the term Anabaptist. Anabaptist was never chosen by Baptist as a name for them. Anabaptist is a slur name by our enemies because no Baptist ever considers a person being immersed to be rebaptized after an infant effusion. It's not a rebaptism because the first one wasn't a baptism. And so that was a slur word against Baptists. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover today and we've got limited time. And for once in your life, you know that I'm under someone else's time management. So we will be prompt today, but we will cover as much as we possibly can. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I hope that when you read Matthew chapter 3 last evening in your preparation for today's preaching, that you saw words that are going to be in Isaiah 40. And the timing is the Lord's. We have four historical chapters stuck in Isaiah 36 through 39, but Isaiah 40 is going to basically start sounding so much like the New Testament. And John the Baptist is prophesied right there in the first five verses of Isaiah 40. And you got to read about him in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus called John the Baptist because he was a dipper. Jesus knew Greek. And the apostles knew and understood that John was a dipper. John was a submerger. John was an immerser. So he was a Baptist. And the Greeks still know that today. I mean, who in the world would want to ask a Roman Catholic what the Greek word baptizo means when they were bred, fed, and die in the Latin language? Who would want to ask a Roman Catholic church father? You'd want to go ask a Greek Catholic church father what the word baptizo means, and all you have to do is go to YouTube and type in Greek Orthodox baptism, and you will find some little child there being dunked three times underwater because they know what baptizo in Greek means. Right. To dip, submerge, immerse, immerse, and we, do, we have a lot more to talk about than just the mode of baptism. But the truth of the Bible screams Baptist baptism from every angle. Right. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 35. Acts 8, 35, we have Philip the evangelist in the desert with the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. This is from Isaiah 53 in context. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, 
If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And that's where in Acts chapter 21 we find Philip, the evangelist, and his seven virgin daughters that did prophesy. And so Philip was originally ordained a deacon, but became an evangelist. And don't ever let anyone tell you that a deacon can baptize because Philip baptized. Philip didn't baptize as a deacon. Philip baptized as an evangelist preaching the gospel. He's already converted the city of Samaria. If you were to read the whole chapter of 8, and you'll find out that he is Philip the Evangelist for being a preacher and a baptizer of the whole city of Samaria and of the Ethiopian eunuch. What a blessed privilege we have today to consider baptism. Now, if you were using the NIV or the English Standard Version or one of these other modern versions, it wouldn't have verse 37. It wouldn't have verse 37. It would, re it would have verse 36 and it would have verse 38, but it won't have verse 37. Because 37 just hurts them too much. And so they got rid of it. Right. It's such an important verse. Because verse 36 has a question by a person that would like to be baptized, if it's possible and legitimate. And the answer is in verse 37, but that's taken away. So there is no explanation as to what is necessary for baptism in that place. And so it's missing in modern Bible versions. We baptize five today for three different reasons, and that'll come up in the minutes that follow. Every baptized person should renew their love of the ordinance and their commitment that they made by it. And the younger you were when you were baptized, the more you should think about it, because the less you understood when you were baptized and the farther you are removed from it. Every one of us needs to think about our baptisms and the commitment of burying our old man, repenting of our sins, and putting our fleshly sins under the water, under the, under the ground, burying them, and rising to walk in a new life of obedience and discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what you have promised or should have promised in your baptism. Most qualifying for baptism is not very thorough, and so people are baptized without knowing very much about what they're doing. Are you doing today what you promised then to the Lord that you would do? Because it was your answer to God that you would live in such a way for his son dying for you. We have recounted martyrs through 2019, and many martyrs died for Baptist baptism. The one you heard about today, one of that group of four, rejected all seven sacraments of Rome. Because baptism is not a sacrament. Baptism is an ordinance. Baptism does not convey grace. A sacrament of the Roman Catholic Church is an outward sign that conveys inward grace. But there's no inward grace con conveyed by Bible baptism. Right. Baptism and Baptist history are large topics. We can only recount some aspects today. We are Bible Christians first. Right. God speaks to us by the Bible. 
or we wouldn't know anything about Christianity. We're Bible Christians first, and that makes us Baptists, because it tells us to be Baptists. We do not believe the Bible because we are Baptists. We are Baptists because we believe the Bible, and the difference between those two sentences is significant. We reject any philosophy or tradition of men contrary to Jesus Christ as revealed in the Bible. The ancient landmarks are being removed today as Baptists cave on immersion. For those of you that like John Piper, I want you to know that John Piper will accept a sprinkling of a Presbyterian that would come to um, Bethlehem Baptist Church in uh, Minneapolis. He's no longer the pastor there, but there's, they're caving on baptism. You know, the first Baptist Church of Greenville caved about 32 years ago and would accept sprinkling in, that's the cathedral on Ferris Road, across from the Greenville Tech campus. They caved a long time ago, but we're not going to cave on immersion. We're going to keep on immersing, and we're not going to accept anyone, no matter how noble, no matter how great their testimony, about some Presbyterian aspersion. See, Presbyterians sprinkle Catholics poor and Baptists immerse. They cave on quasi-infant baptism, but not us. That's why I will no longer baptize anyone under 18 because they don't know what they're doing. Because it is more than I love Jesus. It is more than Jesus died for me. It is discipleship and repentance of sins. And they've never really been tested with sins at 5 or 10 or 12 or 8 or 7 or 11 or 13. You need some years, teenage years. And our Baptist forefathers didn't baptize single-digit children. Never. Never. That's an invention of the last hundred years or so, along with so many other inventions. Listen. We won't let a 17-year-old sign a contract. We won't let a 17-year-old rent an apartment. We won't let a 24-year-old rent a car. We won't let a 13-year-old pick their spouse. We won't marry, most of you won't, a 15-year-old. And yet, you'll let a 9-year-old swear to follow Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives in the waters of baptism? We're mixed up. We're messed up. It's quasi-infant baptism. We're not going there. The only group in the Southern Baptist Convention with more baptisms in 2019 than 2018, in 2018 than 2017, are those six and under. The folly of Baptist baptism. Let me look at baptism with you three different ways. It's folly, it's truth, and it's glory. And when we finish his glory, we'll get out of here and go do it. It's folly, it's truth, and it's glory. The folly of Baptist baptism, and it is foolish. It is is foolish. That's why I had you read about Naaman. Listen, how does a leper... Listen, Zach was so worked up on 2 Kings... Did you get a good night of sleep, Mariah? He was worked up about Naaman, and it's a, it's a chapter to be worked up about, and it does apply to baptism. Right. Because how is a man that's a leper going to have his leper, leprosy cleansed by dipping himself in a filthy river? And he didn't want to do it, and he was in a rage. Because men would much rather do something that's costly, expensive, beautiful, and pretty 
then they will to submit to the Word of God. And that's why we read 2 Kings 5 last night. Naaman, oh, his servants were the wisest. You all know that, right? right. Brother David in his prayer already mentioned a little servant girl, a captive slave from Israel that mentioned there was a prophet that could heal. And then she told another servant that spoke to the king. And so the king appealed to the king of Israel for Elisha's services. Men and women, here's Baptist baptism, men and women, and that's what the Bible says. Go read the Bible about baptism, and it will say, and baptize, they baptize men and women. Never does it even say a child. Never. Right. When, the, when children were brought to Jesus, they were brought to him to bless. And the Bible tells us about those that he blessed, even they were old enough because it says they were believers. It says so in the Bible. Jesus said, whosoever offendeth one of these little ones that believe in me. But he didn't baptize any of them. Jesus was 30 when he was baptized. I wonder why John the Baptist didn't come along when Jesus was eight. Do you know why? No one in Israel would have accepted John doing anything with eight-year-olds, nor would they have accepted Jesus Christ, no matter how many miracles, doing it at the age of eight. He was 30 when he was baptized because that was an adult. That's somebody that's mature, that has experienced enough of life to be able to think rationally and others can listen to them. Baptist baptism. Men and women enter a public pool fully clothed. And one of the men pushes the others, even the women, underwater and lifts them back up after talking about God. If you ask those that were stuffed underwater later, did they see a vision or meet God underwater? They say, no. If you ask them, did it save you from God's wrath? They say, it did no such thing. If you ask them, is such an obvious fuss necessary to go to heaven? They say, no. If you ask them, did that man push you under the water like that? They say, yes. <coughs> and yet Baptists mock throwing stones at the devil by Muslims on their pilgrimage in Mecca. Amen. Yes, we do. Because we'll be fools for the Lord's sake when he tells us to do it the way that we just described. The Mother Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has a beautiful ceremony with a legion of pretty rituals. And we ought to be having one today. Listen, we ought to be having an infant baptism today. Because two weeks and one day ago, I think I have the timing right, a, a little girl was born in our church. Rebecca Hope ought to be up here in a christening gown with parents, godparents, grandparents, grand-godparents, god-grandparents, and everything else they do. There ought to be spittle flying in various directions. They ought to be chasing the door out the east. They ought to be chasing the devil out the east door. The priest ought to be spitting on his thumb and putting it on the ear of the little baby and on its mouth and stuffing salt in its mouth in a Roman Catholic ritual. And you say to me, I'd never do anything like that. Okay, then let's have a Baptist baby dedication this morning. <laughs> Bring that baby forward in its christening gown. Hold it out before the altar of God. Do we have an altar? Where did our altar go? <laughs> There's no altar in a Baptist church. And the, the priest, I mean, the pastor can come down and pray over the baby so that mommies can feel like they got something as special as Roman Catholics get when they have a baby. There's no baby dedication in the Bible. What an abomination. That's someone that wants to look like a Roman Catholic priest. There's no such thing. 
If you want to dedicate your baby to the Lord, then be teaching it every day of its life so that it's worshiping God at three, at four, and at five, and then bring it to me and turn it over to me with handcuffs for the rest of its life. Because that's what Hannah did with Samuel. Right. Except Samuel didn't need handcuffs because Samuel worshiped the Lord there. Right. It's a huge affair in a Catholic church. Christening gowns are kept for generations. The babies wore when poured on. And we had a birth and we could be doing it today. Baptist baptisms are foolish and they're for the poor compared to the Roman Catholics. Look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're talking about Bible baptism today. No, we're not very polite. No, we're not very accommodating. No, we're not apologetic. No, we don't want to be nice to Rome. No, we don't want to be nice to Rome's daughters. We just want to be nice to the scriptures and trust every word of God. Amen. They both went down into the water out there in the middle of the desert. Philip was not in his chariot and he lifted up a canteen. Did they have a canteen in the chariot? Absolutely, without a doubt. Why didn't the eunuch lift up his canteen and say, See, here is water. Drip a little on my forehead. He saw an oasis and said, See, there's enough water to get me under. What hinders me from being baptized? Oh, it's so beautiful. That's why we don't have a dry pastor baptistry. The first time I saw that 18-inch wide thing, I'd never seen one or heard about it in my whole life. And I asked my dad, I said, what in the world is this? And I mentioned a big brother, and I said, if that big brother and I were in here together, there wouldn't be any water left. And he said, what are you talking about? You stand behind it and just push his head under. I said, you kidding me? It's a dry pastor baptistry for a Baptist church. Don't, don't ask me if I would accept a dry pastor baptism, because I probably would. Because I don't really care what the pastor was doing as long as the person went underwater. Right. As long as he was buried. But I won't do it. Right. I won't do it because Philip and the eunuch went both down into the water and they both came up out of the water. So this is why, And we're not trying to be extra sticky about things. All we remember is things like Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the right priests at the right place to the right God offered strange fire and God burned them up. So we don't want to do strange baptisms where the pastor's dry and the one being buried is wet. We both get wet. I don't like it any more than you do. I love it. I love it. I thank the Lord in the middle of the night that I have a greater privilege than anyone else on earth other than other Baptist pastors. And I'm the least and the worst. And he knows I know, and I know he knows. Luke chapter 7. Baptisms weren't pretty things that brought the pretty people out. Luke 7, 29. And all the people that heard him, that is, heard John the Baptist. Luke 7, 29. And all the people that heard John the Baptist and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. What a division made, even in the nation of Israel, even with prophecies about John the Baptist in their Old Testament scriptures, the Pharisees wouldn't be baptized by John. The lawyers wouldn't be baptized by John. 
But the tax collectors and the poor people would come out and be baptized by him. Because there's nothing pretty about baptism, and pretty people don't want to be baptized the Baptist Bible way, or the Bible Baptist way, just like Naaman did not want to dip himself in the dirty Jordan River. Baptist baptisms look foolish. It was the common people and publicans who were baptized by John the Baptist. In Acts chapter 8 that we just read, it, they, they, they take place in ugly venues instead of cathedrals and temples. Mormons, you have to go to a Mormon temple. They're the only ones with a baptistry underground, the temple. There ain't no temple in Greenville because they want something pretty. And the Roman Catholic Church is one of their cathedral or cathedral-looking churches, but not a Baptist. You know, a Baptist is out there at an oasis. A Baptist is at Bethabara. A Baptist is at Anan near to Salem because there was enough water there. An oasis is good enough for a Baptist. And we don't need a crowd. We don't need relatives. We don't need grandparents, godparents, parents, cousins, nephews, or uncles. We don't need them. We don't need any of them. There wasn't anyone there for the eunuch. And he went on his way weeping because his family wasn't there to see his baptism. He went on his way rejoicing because the only one that needs to see his baptism saw it. And that was God in heaven. Denominational upstarts like Pentecostals and Charismatics claim effects and feelings come from baptism. At one extreme, they say you're born again when you come up out of the water, your sins are washed away, and you're going to speak in the gift of tongues. In the middle, these are Charismatics and Pentecostals, they're only 100 years old, will never accept a Charismatic baptism in this church, will never accept a Pentecostal baptism in this church. We don't care if they were immersed one time, three times, or 30 times. A Charismatic baptism does not work, it does not count. Because it's, so they're only 100 years old, and they all know that. They all began on January 1st, 1901, with Agnes Osmond speaking in tongues in Topeka, Kansas. And they all know that. They have no relationship to John the Baptist. They have no relationship to Jesus Christ. They have no relationship to the apostles of Jesus Christ. They are upstarts. They're frauds. Just like the rest of the denominations that have invented themselves over the last 2,000 years. We're going all the way back to the first Baptist. Jesus was a Baptist. Mary was a Baptist. Peter was a Baptist. They were all Baptists. You say, how do you know they were Baptists? What do you call a person who's baptized by a Baptist? John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Of course he was a Baptist. Oh, I'm not mad at anyone except false doctrine. Baptists deny any such thing. We know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit took place 2,000 years ago. The only feeling guaranteed by honest Baptist pastors is that I can make you wet and or cold. Think about it. If we go into baptism looking for feelings, we're going for the wrong reason. We do not want to be baptized because we're looking for feelings. We want to be baptized because we're going to obey God by faith. Faith instead of feelings. Comparing the appearance of baptism, Baptist baptism to the Catholic one, Baptists are foolish. Comparing the effect, no speaking in tongues, no salvation, no washing away sins. That's all been done by the blood of Jesus Christ. Baptist baptism looks foolish and it looks impotent. Because we can't regenerate with YMCA water. So we look impotent. But we're doing it the Bible way. Baptism is by faith. 
like most everything else in the Christian life, obeying God's word because God said it, that settles it. Like Hebrews 11, by faith, they went and did something. By faith, not, never by feelings. Abraham didn't have feelings moving away from home except feelings of homesickness. But he did it by faith. By faith. Nahum and the Syrian, I hope you enjoyed 2 Kings 5 last evening. I'm not, I'm not going to go over it except to say that the reason I gave it to you is Naaman was like those today that want a pretty religion. They want that beautiful christening service. They want godparents. They want the priest in his outfit. They want all that stuff. They want the big fancy church. And they, they don't want a Baptist baptism. And so they hate Baptists. And Baptists are despised. And we despise them. So it's a two-way street. And that is what the Bible teaches. Right. From cover to cover it teaches the war is a two-way street. Right. The righteous hate the wicked and the wicked hate the righteous. And that's the way it will always be. And Jesus Christ is never going to make peace between the two. He's going to make peace in the universe by getting rid of the wicked. And, and confining them to hell. But Naaman, you know, Naaman had to have his servants come to him because he was in a rage. I love every detail of 2 Kings 5 as much as I love any chapter in the Bible. Naaman arrives at the door. Naaman's an honorable man. Naaman's a mighty man of valor. Naaman deals with the king of, of, king of Syria. And he arrives at the door of the prophet of God named Elisha, and Elisha won't even come to the door for him. He just sends a servant to tell him, go dip seven times in the ugly Jordan. He didn't say ugly. He didn't need to. Naaman already knew that. And he's in a rage. He's willing to pay a great sum of money. He's willing to do something difficult, something with some prestige attached to it, but he won't just dip. When the prophet said dip, and so we're going to dip today. And we're excited about being dippers. And we're excited about dipping because it's the Bible way right. as opposed to any other way. And so those servants con convinced him, you would have paid a great price to get rid of your leprosy. All you got to do is dip. And when he dipped, Amen. it worked because it was obeying God's word. Right. And the prophet wouldn't even show him any honor because there's no respect of persons with God. Do you understand that? The, the men he puts in the ministry, the people he calls to be his children, they are the base, the foolish, the weak, and the poor of this world. They are the nothings to bring to naught those that think they're something. Would you? Let me finish up the first part. Not yet. Let me finish up the first part. Is baptism foolish? Would you, if you were blind, let Jesus put spit mud on your eyes and then wander around town until you got to the pool of Siloam? Would you? Did it work? Does spit mud work? If I spit in the dirt and make mud and put it in your eyes, will you let me? No. But when it's the Son of God, it worked. Was there... Was there healing power in the spit mud? Only that he put there by his will. Right. And he said, go wash. You know where the healing was? In going to wash. Right. Believing that spit mud could make a blind man see. That's John 9, verses 6 and 7. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
1 Corinthians 3, there's so many verses that teach this axiom about the Christian religion in the Bible. And that is that you need to learn to be a fool for Jesus' sake if you want to be wise. If you think you're something, you are nothing. God knows it. We know it. You shouldn't be lying to yourself and believing the lie. We want to become fools for Jesus' sake. You know, Solomon had that figured out a long time ago. Solomon said, I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or to come in, even though he was a king's son. And so the Lord gave him great wisdom and understanding and much knowledge. And Jesus said, these things are hid from the wise and prudent, but revealed to babes. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, let no man deceive himself. Are you deceived? Roman Catholics are deceived. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Oh my, I've flown around this country and met with presidents of banks and sat with CFOs of banks with the wise of this world and realized how stupid they were. And I would come home and tell my little tiny children, I was still in my 20s, and how stupid they were. They didn't understand anything. They were there by inheritance. They were there by some stupid degree. They were there by God's time and chance. But they didn't know anything. They didn't know anything about money. I'd pull out silver coins and old Federal Reserve notes that say this note is redeemable in lawful money at the nearest Federal Reserve Bank and give them a lecture and a lesson on money. And they're bankers. They don't know anything. I don't know anything. You'll never hear me end. I am the least and the worst. Because I know who he opens his Bible to the least and the worst. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. That summarizes everything I just said to you, which I hardly ever bring up. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. The universe is ours. And this is how we ought to look at life. I don't know anything, Lord, show me. I don't understand anything, Lord, teach me. I'm going to believe your word. Whatever your word says, I believe it. I'll bet my life in this world and my life in the next world on your word. And I'm, when I say your word, I mean your King James Bible and its individual words. That's how we need to reason and think. Okay, baptism is foolish. Oh, it looks ridiculous. It looks ridiculous. Oh, it's so good, though. You know, to the seeing eye, the seeing eye sees that clothed men and women, those clothed men and women going under the water and coming back up, and they see three pictures of burial and resurrection. Three. See, the Catholic just looks at it and says, how ridiculous! How ridiculous! That person's 20 years old. What if they'd have died at 19? What if they'd have died at 17? What if they'd have died at 7? They wouldn't have been saved because they weren't baptized. And they're just totally confused. We look and we see burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. Burial and resurrection of my old man to rise to walk in newness of life. We see in that burial and resurrection, if I live long enough before Jesus comes and I die and I'm put in a cemetery, Jesus is coming back to raise me up out of the ground. We see all of that and it's all taught in the New Testament. Three great pictures of burial and resurrection from dunking a clothed adult underwater. I'm being very kind to you 18-year-olds. You know how I, what, what word I just used. 
Strange fire. Look at Leviticus chapter 10. I referred to this event, but let's look at it again. Leviticus chapter 10. They were the right men. Wow, were they the right men. They were Aaron's sons. Aaron was the great high priest, the original high priest of Israel. And these were two of his sons. And they were the right men at the right place, at the right time, with the right God, but it didn't work. And so we care about details. And Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Fire went out from the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle and consumed those two men. They were the right men at the right place with the right God at the right time. But it wasn't good enough. And so notice what it says, which he commanded them not. I started out this morning with Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 16. Blessed are they which keep the commandments of God. And so when it comes to baptism, we want to keep the commandments of God and do it the way God said. Or we're going to be like Nadab and Abihu with strange baptisms instead of strange fire. Strange baptisms, doing it to infants. Strange baptisms, pouring instead of immersing. Strange baptisms, sprinkling instead of immersing. Strange baptisms for regeneration and washing away sins. Strange baptisms for dead relatives in Mormon temples. Strange baptisms, intrauterine, for women that are afraid of a miscarriage. Strange baptisms, godparents. Strange baptisms, salt in the mouth. Spit on the mouth and the ears. Insufflation, exufflation. The, the Catholic priest blows out three times over the baby to blow the devil out of the infant and then breathes in three times. It's called insufflation and exufflation. Breathes in three times to bring the Holy Spirit into baby. That's strange fire. That's strange baptisms. Youth leaders doing the baptizing. Friends doing the baptizing. Why not have your grandma do the baptizing? Once you start down that road, strange baptisms. And the Lord consumed them with fire. Though they were the right man at the right time, at the right place, with the right God, these details count. What are the details of proper baptism? The proper administrator. I'm going to, this is not going to be very thorough. 20 pages says it should be, but a few minutes say it won't be. The proper administrator. Baptism must be administered by an ordained preacher of the gospel with a succession from the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles professed and recognized by faith. That means only Baptist baptisms count. And so we have one person today that is being baptized to have the right administrator. And the right administrator is not me by name. It is not me personally. It could be any Baptist ordained preacher of the gospel. But it can't be a Baptist minister of music. It can't be a Baptist minister of humor. It can't be a Baptist Awana leader. It's got to be an ordained preacher of the gospel that's a Baptist. Because that traces all the way back to John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the apostles and ministerial succession. 
We will hold that apostolic line or any upstarts can claim authority. And once you compromise one time on this matter of an administrator, what will stop you? Then we can have two seven-year-olds in a pool. And they've just watched one of your veggie tales? Veggie tales. They've watched a veggie tale. And they're out in the family pool. And they've got 12 inches of water inside the blown up tubes that go around it that dad nearly suffered a stroke from trying to fill it with air. And so they're out there in 12 inches of water. And so one seven-year-old baptizes another seven-year-old. Who's going to stop you from doing that? Who's going to say that's wrong if they both love Jesus once we break down the Bible pattern? And the Bible pattern is John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, apostles, and ministerial succession from them. Paul told Timothy, the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, my public ministry, you commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is four generations of ministers. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also. And so we're going to keep that today. Oh, so much more could be said. And I think you know that it could be. The proper subject. The proper administrator is the one that does the baptizing. Must be a Baptist preacher of the gospel, properly ordained to the work of the ministry. The proper subject is the person that gets baptized. Baptism may only be administered to a subject of sufficient age and ability to repent, believe the gospel, and answer God with their own conscience and commit to a life of discipleship. And they must specifically and intelligently do so. And so your pastor, by a conviction over many years, building and building in the Bible, in Baptist history, watching the results, has raised that to 18. And I thank God for that. And I want to tell you about Capital Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And the pastor there, Mark Devers. I love him. Go plug him in and listen to his 60 Minutes about baptizing at 18. I'm just giving you an example of someone else that by Baptist history, looking at the Bible and considering what baptism really involves, went to 18 as well. I didn't do it because of Mark Deaver. I found out about Mark Deaver after the Lord convicted me of doing it. But I thank the Lord for him. I pray for him every week. The proper subject needs to repent and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the unit? What doth hinder me to be baptized? If thou believest with all thine heart, Children don't even know they have a double heart. You've got to have someone that can understand with all thine heart that you're not doing this for any other motive. Right. You're doing this for the Lord. Faith has to exist. I call it ARS. I want our teenagers to experience the temptations of ARS before they come to me to be baptized. What does ARS stand for? Authority, relationships, and sex. They need to be tried and tempted in authority. Will they submit to authority in relationships? Will they back down, humble themselves, and maintain relationships the way they should? And sex, will they be pure sexually? Those are three huge temptations that an 11-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old doesn't have a clue about. And you're asking them to commit their life to Christ when they don't even know what temptation those three areas are. Listen, till I was 10, I'd salute my dad and say how high to anything he said. 
He knows when the change took place, and I know when the change took place on authority. I was 12 years old. I was in the sixth grade. And I met some other preacher's kids, and he knows exactly the event. It was terrible. I met other preacher's kids. And they undid in less than one week what my parents had done in 12 years. Except, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. So there was a recovery by God's grace. Amen. By God's grace. And so we have two today that have reached the age of 18. Now, 18 doesn't mean they're going to be perfect Christians. 18, I, oh, I hope you know that. 18 doesn't mean they're going to be perfect Christians. 18 is just the minimum that I won't, I won't touch anybody below it. Because I, I don't think you know what you're doing. And you can tell me, well, when I was three, I knew what I was doing. Well, good. I hope you wrote it down for the rest of society to benefit. Because by now, at 13, you ought to be just loaded with wisdom. I just don't do it. And so it's the proper subject. No infants were baptized in the New Testament. Baptism was the baptism of repentance because everyone had to repent. The repentance was, not the words, I repent. Remember John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. Show me. Show me your repentance. What are you out here at my, repent, my baptism of repentance for? Show it to me. The proper doctrine. Jesus Christ is the Son of God and my only Savior from sin. You say, where does it say in the Bible, my only Savior from sin? The answer of a good conscience toward God. How was your conscience made good? By the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in a substitutionary death for you. That's why it's Jesus Christ is the Son of God and my only hope for eternal life and salvation from my sins, from which I repent of this day and commit myself to rise to walk in a new life of obedience to Jesus Christ. All of that is implied, absolutely implied, in the answer of a good conscience. The answer of a good conscience is not the... Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Because, how is your conscience made good? Your conscience is made good by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and realizing that the shed blood of Jesus Christ washed away your sins so that you can have a good conscience. That is Hebrews 9.14. Because for 1,500 years, the Old Testament form of religion allowed no man a good conscience. It purified to the sanctifying of the flesh. Do you know what that means? God won't kill you today by dropping fire from heaven because you offered a sacrifice. But the sacrifice never made your conscience clear of sin because you had to redo it the next month. Or if it was an annual event, you had to do it again the next year, your whole life. And so Hebrews 9 and 10 tell us that the Old Testament never made the conscience clean. It sanctified the flesh, meaning God's not gonna kill you, open up the earth and swallow you like others. But what does the gospel of Jesus Christ do? Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all one time by one offering. He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Do you know what that does to your conscience? I'm free. I'm saved. Thank you, Lord. And I'd sing it if it wouldn't hurt you. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. That's the proper doctrine. More could be said. More has been said. More will be said sometime. The proper mode. Baptism must be administered by immersing. 
or submerging the subject entirely underwater and raising him up again. Any other mode is not baptism, as it has no scriptural authority or New Testament symbolism. Baptism is a burial. Look at Romans chapter 6. Baptism is a burial. What a wonderful statement in the Word of God for us to know, to believe, to trust, to obey, to keep the commandments of God. Romans chapter 6. Colossians 2.12 says the same thing. Verse 4. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. So baptism must involve a burial, and immersion involves a burial. Look at the next verse, 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. What is planting? It means putting something underground. And baptism puts you underwater, so it's a planting. And so it's got to, the mode of baptism has to be immersion, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that John baptized his converts in Jordan. Right. Not at Jordan or with Jordan. But in Jordan, Jesus came up out of the water in Matthew chapter 3 that you read last night. John baptized in Anan near to Salem, John 3.23, because much water was found there. John baptized in Bethabara. If you go look up the word Bethabara in the name of that place, it means the place of the ford. When you can ford a river, how deep is it? It's waist deep. It's not this deep because if... A six-foot, four-inch guy is doing this, I drown. It's waist-deep. That's where you ford a river. How much water do you need to baptize? Waist-deep. I like it a little higher. Philip and the eunuch would not have needed to both go down into the water nor both come up out of the water, but it's by the mode of immersion. The reformers all know that the original mode of baptism was immersion. John Kelvin knows that, wrote that, put his name to it. Right. And we know what baptizo in Greek means by just going to YouTube and asking to see a Greek baptism. The proper design. This is the most important one. Baptism must only be administered for the purpose of answering God with a good conscience and making figurative identification with Jesus Christ. Baptism has no part whatsoever in the literal washing away of sins or the regeneration of the human soul. Right. Baptism does not save in the sense of getting your name in the book of life, washing away your sins, regenerating you, causing the new birth so that you can go to heaven. Baptism is the answer of a conscience of an elect person that has already been justified by Christ, regenerated by the Spirit, and has believed the gospel to have a good conscience. And that is way out of order from everyone else. The fatal error about baptism is baptism saves. As soon as you think baptism saves, you start corrupting everything else to save people. So you reduce the age. You reduce the age all the way down to infants, or in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, intrauterine devices where a woman could baptize her unborn child and they're online go type in intrauterine baptism and they'll show you some of those devices I think you can probably imagine what they must look like the proper design once you say that baptism saves then what if you're in a place where you don't have enough water or the person is sick in their sick bed then you, then you go to pouring you go to sprinkling. 
Then, what if you have a religion that just gets started in 1830 by Joseph Smith, the Mormons, and you think about all your relatives, you've traced them back through, is it Ancestor.com that's owned by the Mormon church? They have their own. I can't remember what the name of theirs is because I don't care. But once you find out your family tree and they never had a chance to meet Joe, then they can't be saved. So you go to the Mormon temple to be baptized by proxy for dead relatives to get them saved. That all comes from one, one fatal assumption, that baptism saves. Baptism doesn't save. Children, there was a thief on the cross beside Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ told him that that day he would be somewhere. Where would he be? In paradise. Was he baptized? No. Children, you can remember that one. That's pretty easy. The corruption of baptism's divine design is horrible. The design of baptism is for us to thank God one time. You know, but we've got to redo it if we've done it wrong the first time. To thank God one time for sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, pay for our sins, and guarantee eternal life for us by His substitutionary death. There's another issue. Look at Romans 14. You're only a few pages away. Romans 14. It's, it's the faith of baptism. It's the faith. The Lord, the Lord values the candle that he put in every man. That's your conscience. It's called the candle of the Lord. And he's put that candle in men. Now the candle can get confused. The candle can be wrong. But the Bible's never wrong. And the candle should want to go to the Bible to find out what God said and what God wrote down. But here's the two verses I want to read. They're the last two verses of Romans 14 about matters of Christian liberty. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. Only in matters of liberty. God doesn't care what you think about anything that he's ruled on already. These are only things he hasn't ruled on. And verse 23, And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So, there needs to be baptismal faith. Happiness, God approves of, requires a content conscience. Doubting a matter makes it a damnable sin. I'm just quoting the words from these two verses. Faith in a previous baptism is required. Your faith in your previous baptism is required when you come to me. Therefore, some legitimate baptisms are repeated because you don't have faith. You know, over the years, people have come to me, and we have two of these today. They've come to me. I've asked them, when were you baptized? And by whom were you baptized? And how were you baptized? And they answer. They go call. They find out ordinations and preachers. And they tell me, that baptism is fine with me. I'm 100% satisfied with that baptism. But if they're not, for any reason, then they don't have faith in it, and their conscience is militating against it. And if they go against their conscience, that's a sin created by the conscience God put in men. Right. And that's what these two verses are about. So you've got to have faith in your baptism. So some legitimate baptisms are repeated, and we're going to do two of those today. Learning truth dilutes previous faith in baptism. For some of us, we learn so much truth that was so different from what we believed when we were baptized the first time, we wanted to be rebaptized just to answer God with an informed conscience. 
with an educated conscience, with a, with a more zealous conscience. And so we did. We do not rebaptize to call ourselves Anabaptists. We only rebaptize to fulfill Romans 14. Turn to my favorite verse on baptism, 1 Peter 3.21. 1 Peter 3.21, overlooked in, most, in many studies of baptism. This verse is the most complete verse in the Bible about baptism. But it is corrupted terribly in modern Bible versions. 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the best verse in the Bible about baptism. 1 Peter 3.21. When it says the like figure, that means baptism is figurative and it only saves figuratively. And the figure is at the end of the verse by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we're baptized, we show a figure, a symbolic reenactment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the mode. So 1 Peter 3.21 teaches the mode of baptism has to be immersion because it's got to be a figure of resurrection. When you read the English language, anything in parentheses should be pulled out for your first pass so you don't get confused by additional information that is inside the parentheses. I've been over that before. I just want you to know that. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it's a figure of His resurrection. It tells us, Inside the parentheses, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. So baptism doesn't wash away sins. So the true design of baptism has told us here that it's not to put away sin, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So it's got to be someone old enough that has an active conscience that wants to repent from sins, has repented from sins, wants to believe the Lord Jesus Christ and commit to a life of discipleship in following the Lord Jesus Christ. All in one verse. But the modern translations of the Bible... Destroy it all three ways. Three points of doctrine about baptism in one verse. Let me read it to you from the New International Version. Look at it closely. And this water symbolizes baptism. No, that means the ark is a symbol or a figure from verse 20. But the baptism is no longer a figure when it says, and this water symbolizes baptism. No, the ark didn't symbolize baptism. Baptism symbolizes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not the removal of dirt from the body. No one ever thought that baptism was to get clean and to get dirt off your body. But that's what they change it to in the NIV because they want to get rid of those words that say baptism doesn't wash away sins. It doesn't wash away the filth of the flesh. But the pledge of a good conscience toward God. The pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. English Standard Version. An appeal to God for a good conscience. Lord, I need a good conscience and I want a good conscience. Please give me one in the waters of baptism. That's all wrong. They've messed this verse up three ways. The verse is still there. The words are still there. Just turned around and altered a little bit. Sort of like this. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt not surely die. And so we have this verse corrupted. Can you identify the corruption of three things? The mode, the design, and the subject of baptism. One more point. I want to I honor Sonny Piles for a moment. He died about three, weeks, three or four weeks ago. I believe he was 80. He was from Graham, Texas. 
I shared a sermon of his that he preached about five or ten years ago with you a year or two ago called the three B's of salvation and it's just an excellent way of looking at the doctrine of salvation in the New Testament three B's you've got belief in the New Testament that's mentioned many many times belief you've got born again or the new birth being begotten of God so we've got another B being born again or, or birth and we've got B for baptism and see each denomination puts those three things in a different order it's just it's just the slickest little way of presenting the gospel in a very simple mechanism for you to think about. Roman Catholics believe this order. Baptism, birth, because you're born again as soon as you're baptized as an infant, and then you believe later at catechism. Under catechism, when you're confirmed. When you're confirmed, 12, 14 years of age. Are you with me? Baptism first, because that causes you to be born again as a little infant, made a member of the church, as a little infant. Yes, some of them practiced, some of them practiced pedo communion, especially Presbyterians, not all Presbyterians, some Presbyterians, pedo communion, because if you're going to baptize the little guys, you might as well let them have the Lord's Supper. They're members of the church, because they were made members of the church by their baptism. So let's just put it in their formula and shove it down their throats. Baptism. So contrary to the Bible. Is that strange fire or not? That is so wicked. The Church of Christ, Mormons and Pentecostals. Belief comes first, then baptism, in order to be born again. Fundamentalists, charismatics, megachurches, Arminians, the way most of us were, were once taught, belief comes first, then you're born again by your belief, then you get baptized. Are you with me? I'm going to go over it again. Roman Catholics, baptism causes you to be born again, then you believe at confirmation. Church of Christ, Mormons, and Pentecostals, you believe first, then you get baptized, which causes you to be born again by the waters of baptism. Arminians, the way many of us once were, you believe first in order to be born again, then you're baptized. The truth of the Bible. The birth comes first. God regenerates us with the power of the Holy Spirit, which we then believe the gospel, and then we want to answer God with a good conscience in the waters of baptism. Praise the Lord. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.